Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're happy to have everyone here, and we're especially happy to have Dr. Michal Biton, somebody who, if you want to talk about claiming your identity and being real, really the spearhead of a lot of what we talk about, this is her. She's the one that encourages us to grab our identity and to be proud of it. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you have so many different hats. I'm going to let you introduce yourself in two to three sentences, and we'll get into more of it later. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really great to be here. I guess I'm an, uh, a scholar and an educator. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy doing research on Sephardic Jewry and trying to understand the contemporary Sephardic experience. I am a scholar in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and I am the co-founder and Roshke Lala spiritual leader of the downtown Minyan in New York City, a community serving young professionals in Manhattan. So yeah, just a couple of things. Um, and all of them, I think, have to do with uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish education. And you've also written quite a bit about what it is to be proud of your heritage and to stand with your heritage. Yeah, I've had a couple of, uh, I've written a couple of articles that really relate to big contemporary questions and addresses them through traditional answers um, and through being really rooted in, in our past and in trying to take from the wisdom of our tradition to address them. So tell us, now that we're talking about that, tell us a little bit about your personal heritage. Uh, sure. So I'm, I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. My family comes from different places. My dad's side of the family comes from Morocco and from Syria. He's a third generation Argentinian. Um, my mom herself was born in a city called Melilla, which is a Spanish province in Northern Africa next to Morocco. They met in Israel I, uh, and um, eventually made their way back to Argentina where I grew up surrounded by these different traditions. My family moved around a bit. Uh, I lived in Argentina, I lived in Israel and Uruguay. And when I was 12 years old, my family moved to the United States, uh, to the US, where my upbringing was fairly split between Sephardi communities and Ashkenazi educational institutions. So that's a little bit about my, my background. Uh, happy to go in further, wherever you think. Yeah, we're going to go go into it more. First, let's start with your home growing up. Did you also grow up with grandparents? Did they tell stories about where they grew up? Yeah, my my mom's parents uh, lived in Israel, so I wouldn't see them as often as I wanted to. My dad's parents lived in Argentina, so after we moved out of Argentina, I was in Uruguay. I didn't see them as much uh, either, but... Um, there were stories. There were stories about my mom's upbringing. Uh, it was very idyllic, very warm, very positive. Uh, so we always grew up with stories uh, around that. My dad's parents also would tell stories, but less about Morocco and Syria because they themselves, you know, 
were born right. in Argentina and more about growing up in Argentina and what that uh, looked like. And in Argentina, was your community mostly Sephardi, mostly like you? Yeah, I, again, I was young when I left, but my dad was, my dad's a rabbi and he was a community rabbi of a Syrian community there. So we, Argentina definitely has a very robust Sephardi population. And that was very much part of my upbringing. I went to a, a school that was um, Sephardi as well when I was there. Um, later, when we moved to Argentina, where I spent my formative years, that was a little bit different. Uh, it's a much smaller Jewish population and it's majority Ashkenazi. So there, my dad was the chief rabbi there, and there, the majority culture and Jewish community was definitely um, Ashkenazi, um, which, which was quite different than Argentina. Did you feel a complete part of the community? I found in the American ecosystem that I haven't found that many people that I share this with, but I grew up in a family that was incredibly confident and proud of its Sephardic tradition, um, like uncompromisingly proud and also learned in who we were, who we are Sephardic Jews. And at the same time, a family that was very, very uh, insistent on the value of Jewish peoplehood and Klal Israel, Zionism and other things like that. So, you know, identity politics could go in different directions. Mm -hmm. um, we never had this sense of, of being like separate. It was always like, this is our people and we are different communities and different families. And it doesn't mean again, that you ever compromise on your tradition or that you don't feel any less proud of what you bring to the table, but it came very much together with a commitment to the broader Jewish people. So I grew up feeling very at home, going to Ashkenazi shuls, to Ashkenazi school, and also feeling very proud of, you know, of what my, of what my family inherited uh, in terms of um, a sophisticated intellectual tradition, uh, humanist religious orientation. Uh, those were definitely things that, that I grew up with and that were a natural part of my, of my family growing up. And when did you realize there were other communities out there that didn't feel like you did and didn't have that? Because you, you do write about the Ashkenormative, you write about them. Well, yeah, I mean, and you could argue that even there, there were, I mean, there can always be aspects of, of normativity in different places. Sometimes I hear in, 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 the, in the U.S. Jewish community, like a sense of either some separatism of wanting to just, you know, grow your own community, but without thinking about the broader Jewish people and broader society, or sometimes there's a sense of intense disenfranchisement. Now, how am I saying that? Uh, intense, like... Disenfranchisement. Yeah, yes, yes. And it's interesting because I, I know many types of different Sephardic Jews and different Sephardic Jewish communities in the U.S. And very often, and I don't want to generalize, but I have found that very often people who feel this way are people who they, they wanted... Ashkenazi institutions and communities to reflect their own Sephardic heritage. And sometimes it's because they didn't feel they got it at home in the way that they wanted to get it. Again, I'm just, I don't want to generalize and I don't want to assume other people's experiences, but, but there was something uh, that looking back, I find really valuable in insisting both in the confidence of our tradition and also in walking into broader spaces without feeling nervous about representation uh, in the same way. Uh, and feeling like we want to be part of these broader experiences. And then do you do the same thing with your children now? Um, that's a good question. My kids are still young. Um, they're three-year-old and six-year-old. I would answer by saying that I want them to feel at home in many different communities. And I would want uh, their Sephardic tradition to feel like 
an aspect of being part of the Jewish people. but to not lead them to a place that is separatist. Um, and I'm using this word loosely, uh, but really just thinking about your own community alone. And I also would want them to feel okay walking into environments that are majority Ashkenazi and to not feel so, I guess, like, I want them to feel really confident in a sense that when you have a certain amount of strength, you walk in feeling strong. That's, yeah, that's, I guess, some of my hopes for them. I think that's an important part of what we're talking about here. Can you tell us a little bit about your research that you're doing now and why it's important to do that? Uh, sure. So yeah, this journey started a long time ago um, when I was beginning grad school at NYU. I was very young and I honestly wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to study. And through a variety of just like accidental conversations that I had with some people, I figured, you know, that I should, I should explore studying Sephardic Jews and see if there was something there that I could spend uh, a long time kind of writing a PhD on. And two things became very obvious to me very quickly. One is that the field of knowledge on Sephardic Jews in the US is really underdeveloped. And I mean this um, not only in terms of not having enough scholarship about Sephardic Jews as subjects, but not having developed the kind of scholarship that tries to understand and figure out which are the categories that we need to begin understanding Sephardic Jews. So that's something that, that felt fairly clear early on. The second thing that felt clear right away is that Sephardic Jews and Sephardic communities in the US are incredibly important to study, not only for their own sake or not only for the sake of, you know, what we might call them, um, a diversity agenda, but actually because they reflect new ways of thinking about the encounter of Jews with America. They reflect new paradigms of acculturation, integration, assimilation, resistance to assimilation, and all of that. Um, and these are really important paradigms to study, not only to understand Sephardic Jews better, but to understand Jews better and to understand America better. So th that, that became clear to me early on in my research, and it led me to spend many, many years doing my PhD. I studied the Syrian Jewish community in New York, and I tried studying it in a way that addressed both of these aspects. I tried studying this community in a way that allowed me to figure out what are the right categories to use uh, to think about this particular community, and also to study it in a way that would allow me to begin exploring it in terms of its social mechanism and to address some big questions that we're asking in general about the possibilities of, of Jewish collective living in the United States. And so a lot of what you had to do is go into the, the Brooklyn community and then were you accepted as one of them or were you accepted as part of the community? Did you feel, did you have the same insulation that they're keeping you out or you were accepted? Yeah, and I think, Dora, you're asking this because um, there is a sense that some Sephardic communities, especially from the Middle East, can be less open to researchers or less open mm -hmm. to outsiders. So my particular journey, and it's one that I describe in my dissertation and in my book project, is that I, I myself have Syrian heritage, like I mentioned before. Right. Uh, and I also got married to somebody who grew up in the Syrian community in Brooklyn. So that actually gave me a family relationship to people in the community that made them much more willing to talk to me than if I was coming in completely from the outside 
and didn't have any established relationships beforehand and didn't have any elements of having built trust with members of, of this community. So, so that definitely helped. There were still like different bumps in the road and, and challenges. And I myself as a researcher have also grown in thinking about the ethical responsibilities of mm -hmm. academics, right? And how do we write about communities that have underrepresented in scholarship? How do we write about people who themselves are not familiar with the production of knowledge, even if you give them a consent form, right? They don't necessarily have the same familiarity that I do in academia with what it means to, to be part of, of, let's say, a book project. Um, right. So, I want to I separate out that they, there is a knowledge there. There is uh, education there. It's just not the academia world. That's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Thank you for, for helping me clarify that and sharpen it. 100%. I was just referring specifically that I think that as a scholar, I had to both um, build up trust um, to be able to have access uh, to this community. And I also had to make choices for myself about what I think are my ethical responsibilities in how I write uh, about this uh, about this community. And, and also some of it wasn't only about access. One of the things that I write about and that I've theorized around is that I think we have certain assumptions that actually this particular community helped me to stabilize. So I'll give you an example. One assumption that I always heard from scholars is that very few people have been able to study this community. And when I asked people why, I would get one of two answers. One answer would be, oh, there's bias. Scholars don't care about this community. Some people use the word Ashkenormative. Uh, they just right. don't care, they haven't asked questions, etc. Okay, that's one answer. The other answer I often got is people just don't want to talk to researchers and they just don't want to open the door to be included um, in this kind of, of scholarship. Right. And what, what I found in my research is that there's partial truth in both of these answers and there's also a whole host of other dynamics that haven't been explored. So there is truth that researchers have not cared enough to ask certain questions, uh, like I said, to investigate certain categories. I think that the study of Sephardic Jews has focused a lot historically on like uh, on Ladino speaking Jews from the former Ottoman Empire. I think there's been much more work on Jews before they immigrated to the US. So there definitely has been selectiveness from the part of scholars. And at the same time, it comes together with what I argue is agency in the part of people of this community who prefer to own their own memory and their own historical narrative, and who, for the most part, don't want to give up power in basically having outsiders write their history. And to me, that's been actually really fascinating because very often historians ignore the fact that there's tremendous power in the production of history and the production of knowledge. And there is a certain logic in certain groups actually wanting to keep uh, autonomy, agency, and, and power internally. So there's all of these layers and dynamics that, are, that I find just really intriguing. I think that's an important point. I mean, when you talk about orient Orientalism, I mean, that's because it's outsiders and because it's different people from different, I, I think it's an interesting point that you bring up there. I have a quote that I quote you quite a bit sure. and uh, from 2016. And one of the things that you said was in Jewish Week, I would urge teachers who make syllabi to not write Jewish if what they mean is Jewish Ashkenazi. 
I will never forget walking into high school classes and having to ask teachers to include Sephardi experiences in classes that were simply termed Jewish law or Jewish history. And that's a small quote from there. Do you still, I mean, this is seven years later. Do you still find that you have that issue in uh, when people say Jewish? Or do you think there's more of a sensitivity to it now? Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. Um, yeah, I think that there is a greater sensitivity uh, in many, I would say, uh, liberal institutions serving Jewish communities, particularly. I think there's a much greater sensitivity of people being anxious around saying Jewish and meaning Ashkenazi. This sensitivity still comes with a huge need for education. So you still have very well-meaning people who are trying to use the word Jewish more carefully, and it still doesn't always fully work, <laughs> even though there's a lot of good intentions. And I actually think it's really important to recognize the good intentions and to recognize the progress and to recognize collaboration and working together. I, I think for me, part of what's been interesting is that I think a lot about what it means to advance diversity and how mm -hmm. for some people it's about like checking off certain like identities like okay we have this you know we, we added some more um names to like our board right and, and those names represent different Jewish journeys and that's really important but for me a real expansion of the notion of Judaism is not only to add more people but to add the kind of notions of Judaism that end up kind of like I said like destabilizing uh, normative narratives I don't know if that if that resonates. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, to me, I don't know about everybody else. We'll have to wait and hear what their feedback is. So let's move a little bit into your other hats because you have many different hats. Um, your congregation. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that plays into your whole other worldview of Judaism? Uh, sure. So I co-founded the Downtown Minion about six years ago or so, maybe a little bit more at this point. It was in 2016. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of community that began with like a very clear, like six-year plan. Um, it was more an organic uh, attempt to, by organic, I mean that, you know, we're just trying things out and experimenting. And a lot of the thesis that we had for ourselves was to figure out um, what it would mean to create a space where we're constantly talking about Jewish values and Jewish tradition, and when we're asking ourselves to bridge the gap between our lives and, and, and our tradition. So that's been actually a, a really important personal journey for me, and, and I believe a, a, a transformative community for many of our members. And there's so much I could say about it. I'll just mention one thing now. People often ask me, one of their first questions is, is this a Sephardic community or an Ashkenazi community? Mm -hmm. um, and, and in terms of percentages of people who come and attend, it's definitely an Ashkenazi community. Uh, in terms of the liturgical tradition that we follow, it's definitely an Ashkenazi community. I'm grateful for that. And I think that in the broader New York areas, like I said, I feel at home in many communities and I'm, and I'm always grateful to build community uh, with people who, who hold similar values and similar traditions. I think specifically what I'm really proud of is that through my leadership, I believe this is also a Sephardi community in terms of how it's set up vis-a-vis -vis Jewish tradition.
We're setting up a space that I believe reflects a particular classic Sephardic model, um, which is inclusive and welcoming while having certain traditional normativity. Um, so I, I would describe it as kind of like in opposition to, and I'm being very simplistic right now, but in opposition to two other models, there is a model that is fully pluralistic um, in which there is, you know, that you don't necessarily have the same traditional normativity. And there's a different model in which you ask people to align in observance or in, in, in dogma, whatever you want to call it, ideology, mm -hmm. to that normativity. And we're not asking for that either. We're welcoming everybody, even as we, uh, and we work really hard to make it warm and inclusive and welcoming, even as we are a traditional community with a certain understanding of what that entails. And do you ever get negative feedback from some of the more traditional uh, communities about being a female there? Yes, yeah, so Jor, I think your question, just to, to give a little bit of context, has to do with the fact that um, many Sephardic communities, especially the more Middle Eastern, um, the ones that have a Middle Eastern background, tend to hold positions that are more socially conservative around leadership for women, specifically leadership in religious institutions. At least that's the outside view today. If you look historically, you did have these strong female leaders, not necessarily from Syria that I have found yet, but from Kurdistan and from the Iraq and from India. I mean, you do have these female leaders, but I haven't seen at least from Syria. And even in the examples that you bring, they're often exceptions to the rule. Um, right. You know, it's important to, yes. to, uh, <laughs> to, to acknowledge history and, and, you know, different things that happen. Uh, I would say the following. I would say that it's been an important goal of mine to lead in a way that is traditional and that is both expanding the notion of leadership that we hold and at the same time doing so within a traditional Allahic framework. So that's been an important goal for me. And part of that is because um, I, well, beyond my own commitment to Jewish law and what that looks like, which is an important part of this, but in addition to this, uh, it is incredibly important for me to remain at home, like I said, in multiple communities, including more traditional communities. So I, I believe that because we've done things in a way that is both expanding notions of leadership, but that is always very eager to remain within the boundaries of alaha and tradition, like the language that we use is not a radical language that we're trying to kind of, you know, bring things down. It's a language of trying to, to live out our traditional values better. So I think that that has contributed to Sangad um, not having received any sort of that feedback that you're mentioning. I'll also say, and it is clear to me, and it is something that I, that I take seriously, I feel not only comfortable, but it, it was a very conscious choice to do this kind of minyan and exercise this kind of leadership within a community where it feels more natural. So I wouldn't have started something in this vein that looked this way, I would say like in the heart of the Syrian community in Brooklyn, because I think that leaders and you know educators need to really think about where people are, what people are comfortable with and work with your community. So, so I think the combination of this being a community in Manhattan for a mostly Ashkenazi, mostly traditional audience and doing things in a way that's both expanding notions of leadership while remaining faithful to a certain traditional understanding of Jewish law has been really important. Is there something that you feel that you should have stood up for more or should have done differently maybe in high school? I mean, you talked about uh, that when you came to the U.S. that you went to an Ashkenazi 
education system, if I understood you correctly, tell me if I understood wrong. Was there something that you feel that you wish you would have shared with other people or done differently, or you feel that you, because you said that you felt at home. I'm wondering if there was anything you regret. There are always regrets, so, or not. <laughs> uh, no, I think I... <laughs> so no, I that's think, fine. Uh... It's good. High school students should learn and grow and not necessarily become um, uh, activists. And I think that, like I said, my parents always gave me so much confidence and so much love for my tradition that I was always very comfortable going to my teachers and pointing out when they should be including Jewish law that reflects Sephardic custom, for example. You know, I was very, uh, I had, thank God, a wonderful and warm high school experience. And I was also fairly, you know, vocal about things that I cared about and found a welcoming and receptive um, administration. But again, I don't believe, I don't think it's a problem for a school that has a special, specific Sephardic minhag or Ashkenazi minhag to function in that way. My kids go to a Sephardic school right now. And, and that's something that's really important to me. And I'm really excited for that. And in the way Ashkenazi students going there, they would feel quote unquote marginalized because the mm -hmm. liturgy that's being used and the trope that's being used is also Sephardic. But I think that we have to have um, some understanding about the fact that we can have flourishing and confident communities. The problem is when we're using, when we are in spaces that are not, that are meant to represent everybody. Or when we just say Jewish again, and, and we don't actually, uh, and we, we mean Ashkenazi or Sephardic, that's when I think there is um, a conversation to be had and we should be pushing the conversation forward. You need to ground yourself in a tradition. Otherwise it's impossible to <laughs> include everybody. Uh, and as long as we are kind of like, we acknowledge the limitations of everything we can include, I think that we're just all trying our best here. Right. I think that's a very important point is in order to have this pride and in order to understand your own, you have to be immersed in it, to, at least to an extent. So what type of places do you think that we have this cross-pollination or these, uh, oh, this, this possibility of showing the full Jewish experience when we bring together these smaller groups? That's a good question. Um, you're asking me where do I see this done really well of like everyone being included? I mean, I think there's a lot of Israeli models uh, where you have like real integration, where you have like, like yeshivot, for example, where there's like a clear policy, uh, whichever man goes up to become the chazan ends up leading with whatever liturgical tradition they are bringing with them. And you have yeshivot where you have real integration in terms of the Rashi yeshiva of the teachers uh, who are bringing in scholarship coming from different places. Um, and, you, and you definitely have like integrated Institutions and neighborhoods, I do think there is there's bright spots around this. Um, I do think there's like social preconditions though. The preconditions have to be to have social integration and the preconditions have to be to have people and families and groups coming, like you're saying, that are all rooted and that have the elements at hand to be able to bring them in confidently. And I think that that's something that, that is lacking in, in many places in the US that I meet just wonderful Sephardic young people, often those who are growing up in Ashkenazi majority communities. And they often tell me like, I, I just don't feel like I received enough education. And then when you have that, then it's much harder to have that uh, sense of wholeness, right? 
as you walk into different places. If we're living in an ideal world, what do you see as our next steps? What do you see as allowing people to reclaim their identity, um, but still be make sure that we have this Jewish nation? Yeah, I tend to use the language of tradition um, more than identity, but I mean, uh, and I, I don't know if I can give you an ideal world, but I think I would love, it's going to sound cliche, but I think education is really key here. Uh, and the kind of, to me, it's the kind of education that really invest in feeling at home in one's tradition in a way that is not like a zero-sum game with like the Jewish people at large. And in a way that um, I think that we have a responsibility when there's well-meaning, let's say, Ashkenazi majority institutions who want to become more inclusive, we have a responsibility to help, to work, to collaborate, to create resources. Mm -hmm. um, I would love for more insular Sephardi communities to figure out what it means to take the amazing tradition that they're nourishing within and to um, and to expand that more broadly um, to to like a Klal Israel uh, Jewish peoplehood um, kind of uh, outlook that, that it can be contributed beyond um, the community boundaries. There's something that can be very fraught about the work of diversity. Sometimes I feel like it's a battleground and people are in battle or they walk into these spaces for good reasons. But I think in an ideal world, it will be less fraught. It would be uh, more organic and there would be a certain sense of wholeness of us walking around with the beautiful blessings and benefits of the things we've inherited and wanting to contribute them to conversations, wanting to learn from others and doing so in a way that is really generous and that is both open to destabilizing narratives and also open to learning new things and open to not always being represented at all times everywhere. <laughs> because I think that, that when you feel really in an ideal world, very further in, we're not there. We're not there here, we're not there in Israel. But I think that the stage when you're not underrepresented, when you have a healthy and confident sense of who you are, then you don't need to see yourself always. So, so I don't think we're there yet. I think that we have a ton of work to do and it is years down the line. Uh, but I'm excited for the work, Jorah, that you're that you're leading. But I'm smiling because it just sounds like that's the way you were raised and you want to expand upon your upbringing and your confidence mm -hmm. in your heritage. So it was just a beautiful thing to, to as I'm listening to you, I was like jumping out of my skin to say that this is, it sounds like we just need to have more of you. Um, <laughs> that's very kind. Need to be no, out but, my, but I do, I am very grateful to my parents. I think they gave me uh, such a gift, really, in raising me to feel really confident in my own home and really blessed by my own home and also to feel at home in other spaces and to feel this desire to make our Jewish people stronger through all of our multiple traditions. So I want to touch upon one more kind of touchy topic. Um, Jews of color. How, how do you see that playing into this whole narrative and our integration? I'll say I was just, I'll say why I'm bringing it up. I was just in a conversation with uh, somebody of Yemenite heritage, a Jew of Yemenite heritage. And he said, he does not understand the whole concept of Jews of color. Uh, do we say there are Jews without color? Are those the other Jews? Are we Jews of color because, uh, you know, and it's shades of color, it's not one color. And so it, it seems like a more distinguishing separate topic than bringing together, uh, not topic, sorry. Description. Right. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, I think you're asking, is there, you know, when we talk about uh, the work of uh, representation around Jews of color, I think the, the term itself I'm talking about. 
Right, but I think the specific concern that you're raising is whether this is um, separating us from each other. Is that is that the, the concern that you're quoting this man from? Yeah, calling that there are Jews of color is one thing, and then Jews without color, according to this Yemenite. Um, right, or yeah, or, or, or Ashkenazi. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think, listen, there's so much here. I think that it's been really wonderful to see the American Jewish community becoming more sensitive to questions of racial and ethnic diversity uh, and to really begin thinking about these questions and to, like I mentioned before, you can have a lot of well-meaning attempts at inclusion and 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 it's been an important, I believe, um, there's been really important efforts to make sure that our good intentions don't only remain good intentions, but that they're actually uh, actualized in different ways. I would say that uh, the term Jews of color has been used in different ways. I actually wrote an article which should be out in a couple of months in the Journal of Contemporary Jewry, uh, in which I, I discussed the term. And oh. I tried to, uh, yeah, happy to send it. Uh, uh, and I tried to actually show the three main ways that this term is being used by scholars and activists and leaders. Um, and part of what I, my intent with that article is to um, is to acknowledge the fact that when you have a growing field, you're going to have disagreements over how to use a term and over what it means. And even even in the question that you raised and the individual that you quoted, I think for some people when they view some of the work around this, they might say, "Oh, I'm nervous about potential separatism." And for mm -hmm. others, they might say, "Actually, it is the way to have more solidarity and to get people who are feeling excluded to feel." more included if they weren't feeling included before. So I think that there is, I think that when we have a growing field, um, we have to just be sensitive to the fact that these terms can be used in different ways uh, by different people. From where I'm sitting, it's very important for me to use this term, um, this category and other categories in a way that tries to investigate how people use them, right? So mm -hmm. I, I don't use the term to describe people unless I have an inkling that they would want to be self-identified um, in that way. So that's something that's really important to me. And generally, I'm excited to approach the work of diversity, whether it's ethnic or racial, um, in a way that attempts to build bridges uh, across different groups. Thank you. And I'm excited to see the article because I didn't even know you were writing it. So I'm yeah. glad I brought it up. I want to make sure that we don't you know, you have this problem that we say we're Sephardi, but you specifically said you're half Syrian and half Moroccan. Were there any conflicts among uh, customs within your own house among that? Or did you feel like it was, it's much easier to be two different Sephardi as it, than to allow in the Ashkenazi? Yeah, again, I, I, I didn't experience this as something fraught growing up. Um, my, my dad also, he himself had, had his own uh, journey. Uh, as a child, he grew up more less observant, eventually became <clears throat> more observant. And part of that was through like um, Rebovadia's um, approach uh, in Israel, which is like a pan-ethnic Sephardic uh, approach. So, so I grew up with both the more local backgrounds and also with like a broader pan-ethnic sense mm. of the Sephardic world in terms of custom and observance. But even now, my husband has you know, he comes from a Syrian, Egyptian, and Iraqi background. And uh, and again, thank God it hasn't, we haven't experienced any of this as fraught. We've experienced it as an additive of wonderful <laughs> traditions that we get to benefit from, carry with us, and hopefully carry on into the future. 
That's beautiful. Well, I could say as somebody married to a Yemenite, I completely understand that and we love to figure out how they work together. Um, so I do want to say thank you so much for joining us today. And we really look forward to reading more from you and seeing more from you and hearing more from you. So thank you, Dr. Michal Biton. <laughs> thank you so much. Great being here. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today. Moses, I-